0: last Friday was a special day and I know that most of you think it was because it was football Friday and high school football but over and above that it was a new moon and the importance of that was that was the beginning of the third feast of Israel during the time of Christ all of Israel came to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple And during the Feast of Booze, they thanked him for the provision that he had made for them as a nation. I got to celebrate the Feast of Booze with some Jewish friends Friday night. And it reminded me, as we went through the order of service, the awe, the admiration that the Old Testament uses to describe the Lord our God. And sometimes I... Hurry over that. And I recognize him as my father and sometimes my best friend. But I forget that he's a holy God. So this morning we're going to come into the presence of our holy God. Blessed art thou, O eternal, our God, King of the universe, who brought forth Jesus to save us from our sins. Help us to hear, O Lord, that you, the Lord, are our God, and that the Lord is one. Blessed be your name and your kingdom that is forever and ever. You remind us to love you, Lord our God, with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. You commanded us to engrave these words on our heart, to repeat them to our children, to talk about them when we sit here in our home and when we walk in the street, when we lie down and when we rise up, you have commanded us to hold fast, to wear these words as a sign upon our hand and a reminder before our eyes, to place them on the doors of our home and at the gates of our property. Lord, because we claim you as our Lord and our God, We can bring our needs and concerns to you. We need your wisdom, your comfort, and the touch of the great physician. So this morning, Lord, we cry out in praise for Samantha's having a great ultrasound that the baby is safe. We lift up uh, Ramona Plozczyk's nephew's daughter, Udi, as she's dealing with seizures We pray for Lisa Clark's father, Ted Thompson, as he's been moved to a rehab facility to begin intense motor and cognitive rehabilitation. We praise you for the results that Malia Broderick is having with the chemo shrinking her tumor. We pray for Jerry Everett's family as they've come together to celebrate the life of his mother through their funeral in. Florida this weekend. We also praise you, praise you, praise you Lord for Joshua Moyer after weeks and months of prayer that the tailbone wound is now finally closing at a good pace and his ability to finally sit up. Lord we thank you for Walter Carter and pray for his rehab for we just lift up Margaret Madsen and Quentin Memorial Day that. Today, she would have a day of joy. We pray for Horace Smith and his health issues and Jeannie Smith and hers. Richard Steele with his and Jim and Florence Wells with theirs. We lift up uh, Daphne Wright again with health issues and the salvation needs of many of our children and friends that they would become complete in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, as we also ask you to prepare our heart for the word. Lord, not that we just listen, although we need to do that, but that we would apply it to our lives, because it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Larry. Um, Let's have the kids be dismissed, their time of worship upstairs. Parents, you can uh, just send them out to the lobby. They'll meet their teachers out there. You can pick them up upstairs at the end of the service. Um, Well, happy Lord's Day to you all. Thank you for joining together in worship. It's a blessing. It's an opportunity we have to gather together on the Lord's Day and worship him and to be assembled as the body of Christ. A uh, few things going on in the life of the church to make you aware of. Um, you, uh, as, you received, as you came in this morning, you received several things. One is the little bulletin half sheet that you can see a few things going on, and you can see um, how you could sign up for email communications, that sort of thing. The things that are big in the weeks ahead. Um, our choir is starting this week, starting to prepare for um, our Christmas uh, Choir Sunday already and so you can sign up for that still. You can come to practice uh, Wednesdays at 6 o'clock in October, so obviously we're October 1st today. This Wednesday will be the first one you can scan that QR code to get more information about the music and that sort of stuff. We also have the Kids Christmas program um, that you can sign up for on the sheet in the back of the the room here. Um, You can uh, also sign up for that online and uh, get with Jason and Emily about the kids' Christmas choir, get with Jason about the adult Christmas choir, um, that sort of stuff. Big stuff going on in this season. But I want to draw your attention to this sheet right here. Um, Congratulations, when you walked in this morning, Richard was kind enough to give you homework for the rest of the month. Um, This is uh, something that our elders have produced to ask you to pray and to pray in unity over the month of October. Uh, We've talked about it a few times um, on November 4th, the first Saturday in November. We'll be asking you to gather here Saturday morning and into the afternoon um, a little bit as we seek to go deeper in prayer together. We'll have some teaching on prayer. It's a Saturday morning prayer conference. We'll have some teaching on prayer. We'll also have opportunities to pray together, to pray around campus, to pray for our community, to pray for our church, to pray for the world. And that's one of our desires, is to go deeper in relationship with God through our prayer lives. And one of the ways that we want to prepare for that is we want to start as individuals. And so as individuals, we're asking you to commit, recommit maybe, to a deeper time of prayer over the next month. As families, we'd ask that you would consider doing this together. And corporately, we believe that prayer is stronger when there are people that are in unity praying together. And so this is something that we're calling um, the whole church to do, to engage in together. Short and simple. um, And so if you're a task completion kind of a person, simple, short prayers for you to complete every day, I would encourage you not to make it a 12-second prayer, although you could Uh, read that in 12 seconds, I would ask you to even go deeper. Allow those simple points, allow those scriptures to engage your heart, to connect with God in a deeper level as we seek to grow in prayer together. The other thing I would have you do, I would ask you to consider uh, every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, we gather together for prayer. And this month, we are moving um, our prayer meeting from the normal prayer room to the backstage cafe right behind me. And I'm going to ask you to just consider joining us at 7 o'clock on a Wednesday night for an hour of prayer together as a church body. I'd really encourage you to make time for that at least once. I'd really love if everyone in this room, everyone in our congregation, came at least one Wednesday night in October as we seek to really go deep in prayer in October in preparation for what God's going to do with us um, through this conference in November. So so remember all these things. Take this home. The Daily Prayer Guide, Wednesday nights, 7 o'clock, come and pray. Saturday, November 4th, uh, join us for prayer. Um, Some other things for you to be aware of, um, coming up over the next month, we're going to have another baptism service on a Sunday morning. We're going to uh, have another baby dedication. And we're going to have another new members class over the next probably six weeks of this fall. We're going to do all three of those things. So if you're interested in taking the step of faith in baptism, or in uh, bringing your your young child forward to be dedicated before the Lord and before his assembled body, or if you're interested in taking a further step of membership for the new members information class, come and talk to me about any of those, email the church office, and uh, we have a couple people interested, and we'll start floating some dates out there soon to try to get as many people as possible lined up for each of those. And now if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. As you make your way there, I'll tell you about Viktor Frankl, who was an Austrian psychiatrist. In 1942, he was, in his late 30s, taken from his home, along with his family, including his parents, but his wife, young children. Uh, His wife was pregnant at the time in 1942. They were taken out of their home by Nazis because they were Austrians, but they were also Jewish. And Viktor and his wife and his parents and children uh, they eventually ended up in a Nazi run concentration camp. And what Frankl did, he was a psychiatrist. So, what do psychiatrists do? They observe human behavior, they talk to people, they, they learn, they ask questions. He started learning and asking questions about what led people in the concentration camp to endure and what led others facing the exact same circumstances just completely melt away into despair and hopelessness. Some people endured the suffering, endured the pain, endured the trauma, and somehow came out of the experiences in the concentration camps with some level of hope. Others faced with exactly the same stimuli, the same trauma, the same uh, physical Uh, suffering the same mental and psychological suffering they came out in complete despair or they died in the camps and many people died of despair because they just lost hope and they lost the will to live so Frankl as a um, psychiatrist thought this was interesting and thought that maybe he could serve humanity in some way by observing and and figuring out what it was that was leading to this difference in the way people experienced trauma and suffering. He developed a new discipline of psychotherapy out of his observations. He called it logotherapy. And the gist of it is this. Humans can, in, can overcome great suffering, great discouragement, disappointment, and even trauma by finding meaning and finding purpose even in the midst of the suffering. He said that if you find purpose and meaning in those moments of suffering, you can endure. You can even find hope. You can find a way through it. So for Franco, he found purpose in his his family, in his work that was before him. He was observing, he was trying to serve humanity after um, he got out by observing the the behaviors and the, the spirits of others around him. And he found all sorts of people finding purpose and meaning in different things. For some it was family, for some it was the children that they wanted to get out and get back to, for some it was some purpose they had in in getting out of the camp, for some it was their faith, their belief in God, but there were all sorts of things. What Frankel said in, in his book that was later published, Man's Search for Meaning, he published the book and he said, what man actually needs is not a tensionless life, but rather the striving and struggling for some goal worthy of him. He said, you don't need calm. You don't need bliss. You don't need a tensionless life to be successful. You need to strain and you need to strive, but you need to strain and strive with purpose. So Frankl's book has been uh, uh, influential over the last 80 years as people have seen and other authors have built on his work and other movements have built out of his work but there's all of these things now that we see that of course sort of come out of this movement in different uh, different ways every organization now wants to find their own purpose statement their own mission statement a vision statement we see these things everywhere even even for people as individuals find your own personal purpose statement or mission statement You gotta know what you're about so that you have meaning in every circumstance, so that you can can find meaning through whatever happens. So whether it's an organization, whether it's a church, a ministry, or an individual. Find purpose, find meaning. Many have observed that humans, we are meaning makers. What we have this capacity to do is we can make, make a meaning. We can derive a purpose out of all sorts of stuff. And all our purposes, our meanings that we can find are varied. But the great journey that many are telling us in our day, the great journey of life and fulfillment, is to find a purpose. you got to find it on your own. And once you find that purpose, you live for it, and you'll find that your life has meaning. You'll find that your life has hope. And you'll find that your life has purpose because you've written it down, because you found out what that one thing is that you're supposed to be doing, you're supposed to be accomplishing, you're supposed to be finding purpose in. A lot of that sounds really good because, it, because there are echoes of that that are good, but here's the problem, here is the problem. The, the, the truth is, that we can agree with, is that life works better with purpose. Life works better when we find meaning. The great lie of our age, is that you can just make that up for yourself. You can find meaning anywhere. You can find purpose anywhere. Now, we can agree with this sense of, if you've ever been through suffering, if you've ever been through hardship, having a purpose in life, finding meaning, even in the midst of the suffering, it helps you find hope. It helps you endure. Many of us as believers in Christ, we've been there. We've lived it. But that Purpose and meaning can't be something that you created, can't be something that you made up, but that is what so many of the movements of this world and the ideology of our age is trying to convince us of, that man can make his own meaning and his own purpose. We spent a few weeks now in the life of Christ talking about those that encounter Jesus, and now we're going to back up the story a little bit. And we just did about four weeks on those people that were encountering Jesus and how they were, their lives were shifted and changed out of their encounters. We also looked at how Jesus encounters people, not just what was happening in them, but what Jesus was displaying for us and our mission and our lives. We're backing up now to go from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographies of Jesus. We're going all the way back to Genesis, the first book. And we're going to do a few weeks here in October, centering around those encounters, that are related to Abraham and his offspring. How God encounters people in the book of Genesis and how that shifts and changes everything. So, today, Genesis chapter 12, we'll actually start at the end of chapter 11 and we'll see how Abram, or Abraham, encountered God, rather God encountered Abram, and how that encounter brought purpose. Not a purpose that Abram discovered, but a purpose that was clearly demonstrated and given to him. So we'll start reading. Um, I'm just going to read the whole passage that we'll deal with today up front. I'm going to start in Genesis 11:27, 27, and we'll read through uh, chapter 12, verse 9. Now these are the descendants of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans, to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And now Genesis 12, 1 through 9. The, the call of Abraham. This is, as we read it, and I hope you, you have your Bible out, or at least look it up on your phone, and you, you see, Genesis 12 is one of the most important passages and foundational passages for all that comes from here. This is what... What New Testament authors would later say, this is God preaching an early version of the good news of the gospel to a man, Abraham. And it's actually a huge contrast to what I didn't read. Go back this week and read the early part of Genesis 11 and see the complete debacle of human society without purpose and meaning derived from God. And recognize that in the context, as we read through this, this is a contrast. There's Babel on the one hand. Man has purpose, man has meaning, and it all falls apart. But Genesis 12, Abram comes into the story as the anti Babel. This is man's way, Babel. This is God's way, Abram, and what follows. Now, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, and from your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took his wife Sarai, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and then the Lord appeared to Abram, and he said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now, this passage, we're going to unpack it in three parts. We'll see the call of Abram, we'll see the promise to Abram, and we'll see the new purpose how God defines purpose, and how we, as Abram did, can have our lives completely transformed, upended by a divine statement of purpose. Chapter 11, as we, as we look at some of the background, we see that um, Terah, Abram's father, had actually begun the journey. Ur of the Chaldeans was an ancient city that's been excavated, and lots of historical research and archaeological research has taken place. Real place, real place, one of the oldest societies in, in the world. Um, Ur of the Chaldeans was right there in the Fertile Crescent. If you've heard the talk about the Fertile Crescent and how uh, early human civilizations developed there between the Tigris and the Euphrates going into the Mediterranean Sea, that is all this land that we're talking about here comes from the Fertile Crescent, Ur of the Chaldeans, down to what is is the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, where Abram ends up. So he moved from between the the Tigris and the Euphrates and Ur of the Chaldeans, he, and Terah, Abram's father, makes it partway. Okay? That's something that's interesting here. Uh, Abram is not called in Ur. He is called when he's halfway there. Uh, because it says that Terah uh, sought to go there. They went, uh, the end of uh, verse 31 there, they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But they didn't make it. For whatever reason, when Terah got to Haran, they settled, they stopped, and Terah died in Haran. But then Abram was called in Haran, the halfway point from Ur to to Canaan, where he was called to go, and God meets him there. Um, We know, Joshua 24 tells us, that Abram and his fathers and the generations before him worshipped other gods. Joshua 24 tells us this. Abram did not always worship the God Yahweh of Israel until God met him. So these are pagans. These are those that worship false gods, those that don't know the name of the one true God. It's important to remember the storyline of Scripture and remember this place in Scripture that Abram is so unique and it's so important what God does here with Abram because Adam and Eve have failed. And after Adam and Eve, all of human society goes, goes in the wrong direction. And then God sends the flood and God rescues Mo, Noah and his descendants. But Noah and his descendants don't get it right either. And then a few generations more pass and then comes the Tower of Babel and God has to divide the nations because they're just getting it wrong. They're finding purpose and meaning in the wrong things. They're worshiping false gods. They're trying to make a great name for themselves. So the great contrast of Abram. Mankind, all together, all of human society gathered together. In chapter 11, we will make a name for ourselves. Chapter 12, God picks one random guy. I'll make your name great. All of human society in Babel was gathered together. We're going to make the name of humanity, of mankind, great. This is our search for meaning, our search for greatness. And God has other plans. God's plans are very specific. And God specifically calls one person. And he calls one person. And think about this. Verse 1 is the call. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Where? He doesn't tell them. Think about the faith author of Hebrews other New Testament authors, they recognize this is an amazing step of faith for Abram. Because though his father had already set an example of leaving and going from one community to another, um, there's not a real clear plan here. At least not in Abram's mind. Because God doesn't give it to him. God doesn't give him the map. God doesn't give him the name of the city. God doesn't say, here, here's where we're going. God says, go with me and I'll take you to the land that I will show you." So Abram's question here has got to be where, but God's purpose is still a little bit hidden even as he calls him. And you see, as we move from the call in, in verse 1 to the promise in verse 1 through 3, you see God add details, put some flesh onto the skin of, of what that, that looks like, what that means, but the new purpose is still not fully there. Look at verses um, two and three. There is a threefold, three there are three components of the blessing here in verses one, two, and three. Verse one, you're going to the land I will show you. Verse two, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And number three, I will bless those who bless you. So that's it. Land descendants and blessing. Verse one says, I'm gonna take you to land and it's gonna be yours. Verse two says, I'm gonna make a nation out of you. I'm gonna give you lots of descendants. And verse three in the two and three says, I'm gonna bless you so that you can bless others. And as other bless you, I'm gonna bless them. There's lots of components of that blessing. God blesses Abram. Abram then has the opportunity to bless others. And anyone that blesses Abram gets blessed by God. There's a very special relationship. It's a unique relationship. Not since Adam and Eve has God been been this close in relationship to any human being. And Adam and Eve, they broke that for themselves and the rest of us. And now here's God saying, you, Abram, not on condition of your obedience, not on condition of your morality, there's nothing about Abram that we see described in scripture that says he's this great guy. God just picks him. He's just the one that God picks. He has some plan. See, God is not here calling the the man that has such great character. No, God is calling the one whose character will be built by God's calling. God is calling him to something he's not capable of, and we're going to see it very clearly here. He's clearly not capable. He clearly doesn't have... This holy, super-righteous character, he messes up a lot along the way, he makes the same mistakes multiple times, but God is equipping the called, not calling the equipped. So we see this this contrast of the way the people did it in Babel and the way God's going to do it uh, through Abram. By faith, Abram was going to get what never truly comes through the the self-effort of the men in Babel. But of course, the blessing that we're talking about here is not just for Abram. The blessing that we're talking about is all nations. I mean, look at that. Really, whatever you think you know about the Old Testament, and you think, well, the Old Testament, it's it's all about Israel and God's dealing with Israel. Look at this. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, some of you have been taught by well-meaning Sunday school teachers, by well-meaning preachers, by your own study of the Bible, great Bible studies, all those sort of things, have probably given you this just a little bit off-center idea that all the Old Testament cares about is Israel. That, that, the, is, that the plan of the Old Covenant... That the plan of the, the books of the Old Testament is just all about Israel and God, God doesn't care about anybody else in Israel. That's not true, and it's not true from the very beginning. The action plan of Israel was for the nations. God didn't just love Israel. God loved the nations through Israel. God's purpose was to love one man, choose one man, To love him and his descendants, to love a nation, and through that path, through that genealogy, through that family tree, to love all nations. Because there's one coming through the line of Abram that is a blessing for all nations in a way that Abram could have never imagined in that moment. And, And the phrase, sons of Abram, comes to mean something totally different the farther you go into scripture. But it's God's way of telling the story. So he says, anyone who blesses you will be blessed. Anyone who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families shall be blessed. And then Paul later says that there is one who is a name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So God's trying to tell, Yahweh's here, trying to tell Abram, all the nations need to bless you. And eventually, Blessing you, blessing the seed of Abraham is going to be all about naming the name of Jesus and proclaiming the name of Jesus. The thread is there from Genesis 12. Really, the thread's there in Genesis 3. But here's God putting some more meat onto that plan, the redemptive plan for all nations that's coming through Jesus, who is a descendant of Abraham. So the land from this point on, the three components of the the promise, the land is really important from this point on. The, the the descendants are really important from this point on because we're going to trace that line all the way to jesus the son of god and the blessing is really important from this point on because we're ultimately talking about eternal blessedness of the saints that are the new sons of abram in the new covenant there's a beautiful story here that god's just unfolding that is so easy to miss and think about abram's role in this pers- purpose What God is doing here is he is taking a guy that's literally worshiping the moon. Worshiping the moon in the center of early civilization. In the center of pagan worship. And God moves him out of there. And he moves him and he says, this is the land that I have chosen for you. But oh, by the way, none of those people here know me yet either. So you're starting from square one, Abram. There's no context here. You're not moving out of the out of the difficult circumstance and into this easy circumstance. You're not moving out of pagan culture and into this godly Yahweh worshiping culture. There was no culture like that. He's starting with Abram. Abram, it's you and your descendants that are supposed to build that culture. They're supposed to build worship. I'm going to teach people how to worship me through you. You are to be a builder. So that's the the calling, and that's the promise. The promise that would only come through Christ, the ultimate seed of Abraham. Galatians 3 8 says it this way The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So that's the proof. That is a gospel statement. Genesis twelve three is the gospel, the good news of the new covenant in Christ that all the nations will be blessed through Abram, through Jesus. So then, Galatians 3, 9, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the gospel, our good news, was announced 4,000 years before to Abram as he was surrounded by temples to pagan worship God revealed his redemption plan in a powerful way so we have a call we have a blessing and now we have the new purpose in verses four through nine this is Abram's new life this is his new purpose and I want to trace it in three ways Abram has a new relationship to outsiders Abram has new projects before him and Abram has a new message Look at verse 6. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem. Shechem is the first place that, that Abram stops in the promised land, in Canaan. And he goes to the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So what we know is that there were not just Canaanites in the land, but the Oak of Moreh was actually a place of religious worship for the Canaanites. This is a really significant spot that Abram is talking about here, and so he is looking at this context, this beautiful land, the land flowing with milk and honey that God had promised, and yet surrounded by opposition, surrounded by people that didn't know Yahweh, people that were not worshiping Yahweh, people that were not walking with God according to the new purpose that Abram had just received. And so now he has new relationships, a new way of relating to others not as a good old hometown boy. He's not at home in the culture from this point on the rest of his life. Abram is never to be at home in the culture around him. He is always supposed to be the counterculture. His descendants are designed to be the counterculture. You're not at home in Canaan. The Canaanites aren't going to be like you. You are supposed to build something different, a counterculture that's going to change the culture of Canaan. You're supposed to live your lives differently. You're supposed to worship differently. You're supposed to do different things. So his relationships with the first people he met in Canaan, they weren't new peers, new friends. They were people that were opposed to the way of life that Abram had been given. And here's, here's where we start talking about us a little bit. What is our role in the relationships with those outside? What is our role in the culture of our day? What is our role in our own workplaces and and schools and the environments in which we build and connect in relationships? Do we see ourselves fitting in, wanting to fit in, desperate to fit in? God didn't call Abram to go to Canaan and fit in. And I don't think God really calls anyone in scripture to go into a new culture and fit in. He calls his followers, old covenant scriptures, new covenant scriptures, he calls his followers to come and be different, to be change agents, to be the counterculture, to follow him as the cultures of the day, whatever day it is. Everybody's so worried about our day. His day was pretty bad too. Whatever day it is, the cultures of the day are gonna be prone towards sin and worldliness and the things that go against God. And so therefore followers of Yahweh are called to be the counterculture, are called to live different, to live sent. Because we're not home in the culture, we're sent into the culture to be representatives of God. So Abram sets this example for us early, and we see that all throughout the scriptures, that God is continually moving people for his purposes and for his glory, taking people out of where they are and putting them into new places so that he can use them for his purposes and for his glory. He takes... He takes David out of shepherding and puts him on the throne for his purpose and for his glory. He takes Ruth out of Midian and puts her into Israel for his purpose and his glory. He takes Esther and puts her on the throne for his purpose and for his glory. Elijah, Elisha, Ezekiel, he calls them into his ministry for his purpose and for his glory. He's moving people around, shaping his purposes and his will to do his kingdom work. And you and I have been called by Jesus to follow him into the places that we go each and every day. We're living as called people into new relationships with outsiders. Number two, I said already, Abram was a builder. That's what God called him to do. Look what he builds. Uh, Verse seven, the Lord appeared to Abram. This is this this encounter. So he he speaks to him in verse one, and then he appears to him um, here in verse seven. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So when he's in Haran, in verse 1, God speaks and says, you got to get out of here. And then in verse 7, he's in Shechem in the promised land, in Canaan where God has called him to. And the Lord shows up and speaks to him again. Whether he appeared in verse 1 or not, we don't know. We know he appeared in verse 7. And in verse 7, Abram Build something, an altar. He builds an altar to worship God. But then from there, he moved on to the hill country to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And what's interesting to see from this point on, we see that one of the things that Abram does is he goes from being the pilgrim and the sojourner, the man without a home, the nomad to a builder. But the building that he does is building focused on the worship of Yahweh. He builds an altar. The first one we see is verse 7. He builds an altar in Shechem. And then we see in verse 8, he builds an altar in Bethel. And then in chapter 13, he builds an altar in Hebron. And then in chapter 22, he builds an altar at Mount Moriah. And this is Abram's legacy is God's calling him and God's moving him. And Abram is building a culture of worship of the one true God where he goes. He is a worshiper of the one true God and he is continually trying as he goes to be the best representation of a worshiper of the one true God, Yahweh. And he's building altars, not just so he can worship, but so that others can worship. That's his new project, to spread the worship of Yahweh amongst the nations around him not particularly successful in his lifetime but his seed jesus is really really successful at doing that because that is god's purpose overall is for the nation of israel the descendants of abram to build in to the nation's worship of the one true god but then in verse nine we see something else there's not just new relationships there's not just new project new relationships for six new projects in seven and eight new building projects of the altars and verse nine a new message Look what verse 9 says, or verse 8, sorry. There he built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. That's what I want you to underline there. What What is Abram's speech? What is Abram's message? Now, we know from earlier in this passage that Abram brought a number of people with him. And when Abram brought a number of people with him, he brought, of course, his wife. He didn't have any descendants. There were other people that were with him. Other people that had joined him in his pursuit, a part of his party. There was his nephew Lot, and there was, as we see later in these passages, Abram has a large party of people that are traveling with him, that are establishing this, these communities with him. And so what Abram is doing in calling upon the name of the Lord, he is calling for the worship of Yahweh little fact that you need to know as we read through this passage I should have stated it earlier anytime you see the word Lord in your scripture and all four letters of Lord are capitalized that's a way of telling you that the Hebrew word there is Yahweh the the name of God so it's not impersonal when scripture says Lord the the old covenant scriptures the Hebrew scriptures that is the name of God so what What Abram is doing is he's calling on the name of God. He's calling on the name of God in the midst of the people that have followed him as his household and in the midst of the people that are opposed to him. This is missional, this is outreach, this is ministry. Imagine Abram, the new guy in town, just gotten into a community, but he knows he's been given a divine purpose and a divine call, a divine mission. And so he's coming up and and standing in this high place amongst all these outsiders, people that are worshipping created things, worshipping the sun, moon, and stars, and don't know that there is one God, and don't know how they would connect with one God in any way. And Abram, the new guy in town, who has this entourage with him, he comes up and he builds an altar, and he calls out, and he calls God by name, and he calls other people to do the same. That's what this passage is telling us that Abram calls upon the name of the Lord in the midst of the people that are both in his party and outside of his party in the midst of the wicked Canaanites Abram has all of a sudden gone on mission as a representative of the one true God and he knows him by name. He's seen him face to face. That's purpose. A purpose that is not something that you can just derive for yourself because you, you took this assessment and you found out what your passions are and what your gifts are and what your strengths are. So therefore, out of your passions, gifts, and strengths, you came up with this new purpose statement for yourself. Now, this is a purpose that God showed up to deliver to Abram face to face. And Abram has been completely transformed from worshiping the moon to worshiping one true God, relating to outsiders differently. Building the worship in a lost community, in a community opposed to God, and calling on the name of the Lord, publicly proclaiming His faith, His faith. Martin Luther translated this passage in uh, verse 12 and emphasized that calling on the name of the Lord in 12:8 actually conveys the idea of preaching. Preaching in the midst of a large entourage. We see that in 1414. Proclaiming Yahweh in a public event. Extolling his great attributes and his mighty works. Abram says, I'm new in town. You don't know me. This is why I'm here. This is who I'm following. This is what he's all about. It's a public spectacle for the sake of the name and fame of Yahweh, the one true God. Think about that sort of purpose Think about how that shifts you and changes you. Abram has been radically, radically transformed. But wait. Because then comes verse 10. There was a famine in the land, so Abram cuts and runs. There was a famine in the land. Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. God has just given him a whole new purpose, a whole new calling, new relationships, new projects, new message, new home. And then a famine comes and Abram leaves the home. And what happens when Abram leaves Canaan? Bad stuff happens. He goes to Egypt, he looks at his wife, says, hey, you're beautiful, Pharaoh's going to notice, the men of Egypt are going to notice, so let's just lie to them and let's just say you're my sister. And then what happens? As you go on in verse 12, verse twelve, seventeen, or chapter 12, verse 17, the Lord afflicts Pharaoh with, or Pharaoh with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Why? Because of Abram's lie. Because of Abram's lie and Sarai's lie, Pharaoh and Egypt gets afflicted with plagues. Pharaoh gets mad and, and eventually they find out what happened and they send him away when they find out that he had lied. By the way, that's not the only time Abram does it. So what's happened here? What do we learn? My whole sermon was built around this beautiful transformation of Abram. God shows up, speaks to him face to face. God appears to him in Shechem and says, This is your goal. This is your life. New relationships, new projects, new message. Here's your calling. Go. You're different now. And he's not. He's still self-preserving, still fearful. Still will on the issues, cares, and concerns of the world. So what gives? Does that nullify the new purpose and the beauty of the new purpose God has just given? No. It shows us how hard this new purpose and new life are to grasp. The beauty of, the, the beauty of this whole story, the beauty of this whole passage and picture, is that we stand in a position of advantage over Abram himself. Abram was called by Yahweh, the one true God, to a new purpose, a new life, and he failed. But as he failed, he failed forward, and God brought him along, and God was faithful when Abram was not faithful. But we stand in advantage. Why? Because the line of Abram was completed. We're called to the same new purpose that he is. We're we're called to those same things on the screen. New relationships, new projects, new message. We proclaim the kingdom of God. We make disciples everywhere we go. We see everyone as a potential disciple of Christ as we meet them and relate to them. We are building his kingdom in what we do. That's our purpose. That's our calling. The gospel of Jesus Christ above all above all else. Christ in him crucified. That's who we are. But we have access to a new power. The power of sin still how control over Abram, as he was called. The power of sin has no power over the one who has received new life in Christ. Are we still infected and infiltrated by sin? Yes, we still have the same temptations, but there is no power there. And, and the divine purpose that God has given us now is to continue to follow even when we fall short, continue to follow and recognize that our failures are not counted as sins in Christ because those have been paid for by Christ. And Abram goes through these different periods of of failure and success, failure and success, and God has got to lead Abram along through all of these highs and lows, to get him to the point of faithfulness. And what an extreme point of faithfulness God brings him to when he's on Mount Moriah and he tells him to sacrifice his son. But look at how God has has led him. Go to the land I'll show you. Abram says, where? Where are we going? He says, Abram, I'm gonna make you a great nation. How? My wife is barren. Notice, scripture is intentional in the way it tells the story. We are told that Sarai is barren before that promise is given. We already know Sarai is barren at the end of chapter 11, and then we're told he's going to be a great nation. So where are we going? How are we doing it? And God says, now I've given you a son. I've proven myself. Go sacrifice Isaac. And the question has got to be, why? Where? How? Why? God, what are you doing? But all of this so that God could create a people for himself that we could be grafted into. By the blood of Jesus. And so what is our calling in light of Abram's calling? New relationships, new projects, new message, with a new power. Only for those who have recognized their sin, confessed their sin, and received the call of God for new life and transformation. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now we walk out under the power of the Spirit. So how do we do that as we go? Three three points I'll give you to close. And the band can go ahead and make their way up. Number one, encounter. Encounter the Lord through Jesus this morning. We have one more opportunity to sing. We have an opportunity to come to the altar. We have an opportunity to kneel where you are. I pray that anyone in this room today who has not yet encountered the Son of God would come in faithfulness and in humility and that God would just breathe into you new life through His Spirit. If you want to have that encounter, if you want to meet Jesus, come forward this morning. We encounter the Lord, number one we embrace a new purpose. God has given you. I, maybe you have a purpose statement for your life, great, good for you. I want to make sure that if you do, that in that purpose, the gospel of Jesus Christ is there. Because that's the only purpose that will really help us navigate through suffering, help us navigate through everything culture and society in a sinful world will throw at us, this purpose to be found in Christ and hope that is found in the new kingdom and new eternity. And number three, we engage. Now that we've been given a new purpose, that we've embraced a new purpose through this encounter we've had with Jesus, we're called now to engage. Because there's plenty of people living with no purpose and weak purpose. And we're called to them. And we have something to say. We have incredible power in what we say to them of the stuff we came up with ourselves, but out of the power of God. So as we stand and sing, I pray that you would ask the Lord how to respond this morning. Encounter, embrace, engage. Let's stand.